Welcome to Mytho Ladies, a podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. And how are you today, Zoe? I really almost said I'm Lizzie, so that's about where I'm at right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm good. I'm uh, having a good weekend. It's Halloween, so have a lot of fun oh, playing. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah, I just met up with a bunch of people for my directing class to direct a scene, and that went really well, so I'm very excited about that. That's awesome. How are you? I'm fine. I'm not doing anything for Halloween. I am staying indoors. That sounds good. With my girlfriend. Ooh. Yeah. Lizzie has a girlfriend. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) Sorry to break some hearts. Um, I know all our fans are really sad, but it's okay. I'm still single, so... (laughs) slide into those dms anyways zoe is taking applications i am taking applications feel free to dm them go for it (laughs) i'm i'm down okay i was gonna ask you a question but now oh yeah is is halloween big in the netherlands um or is it really just an american thing no no they have it here but it's it's not like i mean people like go to parties and stuff Mm -hmm. but it's definitely not as big a thing but it is a thing Mm -hmm. yeah it seems like like I have already seen Christmas decorations, so I'm guessing I'm thinking that's a much bigger thing. I mean, yeah, than for Halloween. Sure. I actually went to um, Dutch TJ Maxx the other day. Whoa, TK Maxx. TK. Maxx. It was it was like exactly the same, except it was in Dutch, which was awesome. That I was is like, really this is like being back in America, wow. but in a in a fun way. <laughs> yeah. Did it did it get your homesickness, or did it help your homesickness, or anything? Actually, yeah, it was great, and I like, I found so many candles. That's it was awesome. <laughs> that's great. So before we start the episode, we would just like to remind you all that we have a Ko-fi page where you can contribute to either a monthly or one-time donation and then have access to our bonus episodes. Or you can also subscribe to us on Spotify for about $5 a month, and then you will have access to our bonus episodes there. Yeah. We currently have three bonus episodes, the most recent of which we talk about Streganona, mm-hmm. the beloved children's book by Tommy DePaola. Yeah. And that all being said, today's a themed episode. Zoe, what are we talking about? So today, um, excitingly, we are talking about winter goddesses because it's getting cold and winter will soon be upon us. Daylight savings time ends next week. So, but anyway, now we're talking about um, winter goddesses. And as I sort of mentioned, um, like we talked about in our old crones episode last year, winter goddesses are actually typically depicted as old women. Um, And that's because winter is considered the death of the year before the earth is reborn in spring. They're not always depicted as old women, though, but it's not uncommon. And in fact, a lot of the um, old women we talked about in our um, old Crohn's episode are associated with winter. Like Kayak Bera. Yes, I actually have her down um, later in my notes. Um, I mentioned her. Nice. And so she's generally considered the crone archetype of the mother maiden crone triple goddess. Um, The old woman represents death and dying and wisdom and darkness. Side note, though, I found out there's not actually that much evidence for the mother maiden crone archetype being like a big thing, though, which is really interesting to me um, because it's so big. But like maybe it doesn't actually exist that much. But anyway, there are a lot of like 
Maybe it's because it's like it's so neat. Like it's like, ooh, this is such a really nice way of categorizing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't realize it wasn't very. Yeah. Uh, it was just like Robert Graves prevalent. saying stuff, and he's kind of weird. So he's like the Joseph Campbell of that. Yes. Of. <laughs> it's one of the because. Like, Nineteen in the nineteen hundreds, folklorists were just saying whatever, and then people actually looked into it. And they were like, "This isn't actually as relevant as you said it was," because you look. We looked at more than just a few like mythologies in the world. But anyway, yeah, and in particular with Joseph Campbell, I feel like a lot of his work regarding myths was really discredited by actual folklorists, mm-hmm. but like really widely accepted by like George Lucas, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so it got really big because people were like, this is awesome. But it's, but it's not necessarily, like, mm-hmm. well-founded. Yeah. But anyways, they are often depicted as old women. As I said, winter, things die. Makes sense. Um, they're also often seen as threatening figures. Um, winter is a difficult time. And this was especially relevant in pre-industrial times when your livelihood was dependent on agricultural cycles. And in the winter, you're not growing things. You have to rely on your stores and the harvest. And if you have a bad harvest or your store, something bad happens and you lose all your food or whatever, you're kind of screwed. And also you probably so don't winter have... winter was a really scary time. Yeah, you don't have great insulation and... You kind of have to really buckle down for a couple of months and hope that you can make it through. So, yeah, uh, winter goddesses were pretty scary. And so there were often beings that had to be banished or sacrificed to in order to protect oneself and one's family from their wrath. And their wrath generally involved like things like bad weather, frosts, things like that. Um, things that winter entails, you know, winter weather. Mm. However, some winter goddesses actually will come in pairs with one being kinder and the other being crueler. Um, a good example of that is with the Germanic figures of Hola, who brings the snow, which is like soft and gentle, and then Perta, who we talked about in an episode last year. We've talked about both these figures before, actually. And But Perta brings the cruel frost and wicked punishment for evildoers, um, and they're sort of like um, two sides of one coin, one being nice and the other being more mean. And other winter goddesses are actually directly associated with spring and summer deities, whether as different incarnations of the same figure are twins or rivals or like again we have the mother maiden crone kind of incarnation thing where it's like the they she ages and grows old and dies and then is reborn is the sort of like idea i think we see sometimes and the example is kaliak bera and brigid um who are associated with each other i believe yeah. um yeah yeah we talked about this in the crones episode yeah with brigid being a spring goddess and kaliak bera being a winter goddess and so according to the article, The Winter Goddess, Percht, Hulda, and Related Figures by Lotte Motz, um, winter goddesses often have the following traits. Um, so the time of w- midwinter is seen as holy or important to them. It's the time when they are the most powerful and significant. Makes sense. They have some kind of power over nature, particularly winter weather, particularly snow, frost, etc. There are domestic and seasonal customs associated with these figures influenced by their legends. So there are like rituals that you have to perform in order to appease them, um, certain holidays and stuff associated with them. They have the power to deal both punishment and reward. They're often associated with women's home chores, such as spinning is actually a really big association. They often have a dual aspect, either in personality or appearance, sometimes appearing as like a young woman and pretty or old and scary which is an interesting dichotomy we've talked about before, but anyways. Yeah. Um, they often have associations with animals. 
Um, and they rarely have male partners or any form of like implicated sexual relationships, which we will talk about today is not always the case, um, as I at least have a woman who does have a husband and is is it's a big part of her story, but isn't the case for a lot of actually same. All three of my women have husbands. OK, so maybe that one's not as accurate as we'd like to think. But but also my women are all outside of like um, sort of Christianized. Yeah you know, mm-hmm. westernized Yeah, I mean, I cultures. feel like that also goes with, like, the old woman thing is, like, well, the old woman's not having sex, you know? Fair. Yeah, um, and again, heavily associated with nature and also, quote-unquote, wild areas, people, like, uncivilized, unchristianized areas of, like, particularly Europe is the area that lots and lots is looking at because she's looking at, like, Germanic figures, but, like, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it wouldn't be necessarily universal. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of associations between winter gods and, like, Christian holidays. Like, Christmas was originally, like, the t- um, there were originally, like, pre-Christian um, winter holidays celebrated around the time of Christmas, and the church was like, hey, what if we did that instead and people would celebrate our holiday instead and things like that. Yeah. And yeah, as I just said, um, there were various like solstice celebrations, midwinter holidays, and those goddesses were often directly associated with those celebrations. So Lizzie, all that being said, who is our first lady of the day? Our first lady is Skavi, who is from Norse mythology. She is associated with winter, skiing, bow hunting, and mountains. Nice. She is the daughter of Thiazzi, the giant. And she is called the Divinity of Skis. She's heavily associated with skiing. Nice. And she's described going about on skis in the mountains and shooting prey with her bow and arrow. She is thought to be associated with the god Ulij, who is also described as a deity of skis, although there's less known about him. Mm. And it has therefore been suggested that Skadi and Ulij were a pair of deities associated with the North and with winter. Mm-hmm. She's written about in several works of old, old Norse literature, including the poetic Edda, Prose Edda, mm-hmm. and Heimskringla. And so there are several stories about her. So many of the stories mention her being married to Niarther, who was a god among the Vanir and the father of Frey and Freya. Mm-hmm. So... In one book of the Prose Edda, it says that Skadi wanted the two of them to live in Fidimheim, which was part of the giant's territory, but Niarther wanted them to live in his home by the sea. Mm-hmm. So they compromised that they would live nine nights in Skadi's home and three nights in Niarther's home by the sea. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it's not really an even distribution of the yeah. days. However, they each hated the other's home, and so they were forced to part because they could never live happily together. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, she, it's not her nature to be by the sea. She's over the mountains, you know? That's an interesting story. And vice versa. Yeah. And in another book of the Prose Edda, Skathi travels to Asgard to confront the gods because they killed her father. Hmm. They offer her her compensa- compensation in the form of a husband, and the deal is that Skadi may choose any one of them, but she must choose this husband solely by looking at their feet. Mm. This story is so, like, Norse mythology. Yeah, it's just like, I mean, it's very mythology. It's like, haha, here's a funky little trick for you. I'm pretty sure it's Loki who came up with this idea. Um, like, I mean, probably. <laughs> Loki is also in this particular the story in this particular book of the Prosetta. Uh-huh. And um, part of it is also, this is like 
kind of gross, so I didn't actually put it in my notes. But part of it is that, like, oh, she's like, well, none of you could make me laugh, like, challenging one of them to see if they can make her laugh. So, obviously, Loki is the one to step up, and he ties one end of, like, a string to, like, a goat, a goat's foot or something, and one to his uh, testicles. Oh, and so then he's like pulled around and stuff and ends up in her lap and then she laughs. What a man. Um, Loki is such an interesting character. Yeah, such an interesting character. Anyway. Anyway. But so she she looks at the feet of a bunch of gods in Asgard and she chooses a pair of feet that she finds the most attractive, thinking that they belong to Baldur, but they in fact belong to Nyarther. Mm. And that's that, basically. Yeah. But then in Heimskringla, it says that Skadi had once married Nyarther, but had been unwilling to have sex with him. But later on, she married Odin, and they had many sons, including uh, Samingud, a king of Norway. Interesting. And it's not always the most important detail, but like in every story of the two of them as a couple, they part. Like They can't be together for whatever reason. Uh, they don't want to be together. Skadi and Odin or Skadi and Nyarther? Nyarther. Okay, yeah. Not Odin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. Also, I think her being married to Odin is only like sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense because Odin has like Frigga as his wife a lot of the time. Um, Yeah. So it's interesting that we hear him having like other affairs or other relationships. Yeah. Anyway, so something interesting is that Skadi likely had a large cult in Hualogaland, which was the northernmost part of the Norwegian provinces and in Norse sagas. That makes sense. And this region this region was home to a lot of Sami people, so it's theorized there may be a connection. Mm-hmm. Skadi is associated with skiing, shooting with a bow and arrow, mm-hmm. and hunting, which are all things associated with the Sami. Yeah. And her separation from Njarðr and her myths may point to a separation between her own cult and that of the Vanir in this region, as Njarðr was a was a Vanir, a god of the Vanir. Yeah. Where Scandinavians and Sami were in close contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah, so that's a potential link. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But also, another thing I saw was that her father's name, Thiazzi, may possibly be related to a Sami word meaning water or lake. Mm. Which is interesting. Yeah. I don't know the probability of that. I saw it in a source, but I couldn't find out what the word supposedly is yeah. that is related to Thiazzi. Mm-hmm. But interesting. I think that's cool. That I mean, cool. Obvi- obviously, because she is associated with the North and, you know, very, yeah. very cold climates and snow and everything. It makes sense because Asami obviously lived in the North, live in the North. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that she would be important to the to like uh, people in the far North because of her associations and also because she skis, she hunts by bow. Like those are, you know, probably really. And there's commonalities and yeah, yeah like, it makes sense. Things you're doing a lot at the time. So, like, yeah. obviously you're going to want the favor of someone who do- also does that a lot. But, yeah, um, very interesting. And, yeah, that's also interesting, um, the possible meaning of the story, because that's a story that, I like, has always been interesting to me, uh, of, like, the separation between her and her husband, because it's not, like, it's interesting. There's, like, this level of, like, incompatibility that just, like, feels like it must have a, a strong meaning, but I just can't, like, quite get at it. Because it's yeah. not like it's not yeah. like Persephone and Hades. It's like they married willingly and 
some in many versions. Yeah, and also they separate, which doesn't happen in Persephone and Hades, is like, or at least not like. Yeah, and fully. they and they choose to separate. It's not like something tragic tears them apart. They're just incompatible. Yeah, which is also interesting because like divorce was a thing that happened in like this culture. So like they have divorces in their mythology. Sort of is what I'm like. This feels like to me, which is funny. Yeah, yeah, but, divorce. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, divorce. Love divorce. Divorce is awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. So on the other hand, we have a woman from Iranian folklore who really loved her husband. Um, and her name is Nani Sarma, which means Grandma Frost. Um, but she's also known as Bibi Barfi, which means Grandma Snow. So, um, And she's associated with the phenomenon of one week of cold weather at the end of winter known as Bard Ol Ajus, or the cold weather of the old woman. And there are a lot of different stories associated with her, um, and these stories have various variations. But basically, the main story, it has to do with her relationship with her husband, who is Amu Nautuz, um, and is associated with the Irani- Iranian New Year, um, Nautuz. Um, and he appears every year at the beginning of spring to help s- travel across the country and like s- travel across villages to help people celebrate the New Year. Um, so he was traveling across the country doing his thing one year when he came across Nani Sarma, and the two instantly fell in love. However, he still had to perform his duties going from town to town, and Nani Sarma waited for him throughout the year as like a, lo- a devoted lover. And as the time grew closer to his return, she cleaned her house from top to bottom so that it would be nice for him to return to. However, right before he returned, she fell asleep due to the exhaustion of all her efforts of cleaning and everything, and slept all throughout the year until the next new year. And then this kept happening over and over again. And so therefore, the two never see each other, but hope one year to finally be able to meet once more. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is really interesting. They're in love, but they like never see each other. They like are always two ships passing in the night, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like sun and moon gods sometimes yeah like mm-hmm. destined to always be apart yeah and then some stories say that like if they were to see each other it would mean the end of the world which is like interesting but yeah that's 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 a, that's cool that's a cool detail mm-hmm. so then another version of the story um so it says that nani sarma had three children she had a daughter who is kind of inconsequential to the story unfortunately um and two sons named Amman and Baman. and one day her two sons went up to the mountains to collect firewood and never returned um, so she obviously became quite worried and went to search for them. And after three days of not finding them, she was really upset. She set fire to her broom and tossed it in the air and said, Where is my Amman? Where is my Bothman? I will set fire to this world. And it said that the warmth from the broom fire is said to be the warmth that returns after the cold of winter. Huh, okay. That's another sort of version of the story. And then the third version, which sort of combines the two, says that Fourteen days before spring, an old woman, who is, of course, Nani Sarma, uh, began her spring cleaning. She ground the flour, she brought in the water, she did the laundry, she baked bread, she cleaned the oven. Then when she was done, she sat on the roof and waited for her husband, and she was making a necklace for herself in the meantime. Um, but while she was waiting, she fell off the roof and died, unfortunately. Oh. Very sad. Um, and so when her husband returned, he was really sad to see his wife had died. Um, so he set fire to the thorny bushes outside their house and then also jumped off the roof. And their deaths and the fire are said to have brought a return of the warm weather. 
And hailstones are actually said to be from the beads from the necklace she was working on when she fell off the roof. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, but anyway, like, the story seems to be very much associated, like, with, you know, a woman and a husband who are waiting for each other but never quite get a chance to meet, which is really sad but also very interesting. It's Um, very tragic. Yeah. And also spring cleaning, which is really... Interesting. Yeah, spring, it's all spring cleaning in there. Yeah. It's fun. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's associated with like this phenomenon of there being like one extra week of really cold weather at the end of winter and then it's spring and that's like the last of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So next we have Poliahu, who is a Hawaiian goddess of snow and ice. Mm-hmm. So we talked a bit about her in our episode about Pele, the volcano mm-hmm. goddess. Do you remember? the stories there was some sort of fight between the two of them that's correct um so they are enemies poliahu and pele but poliahu lives on mount Kea, mm-hmm. while pele lives on mount aloha both of which are huge volcanoes in hawaii mm-hmm. and pele is said to have a very fiery personality whereas poliahu is sometimes said to have a more cold personality shocking yeah <laughs> and so <laughs> poliahu wears a pure white mantle and is extremely beautiful Often considered the most beautiful of Hawaiian deities. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. And she is not the only snow goddess in Hawaii. She is one of four sisters who are all associated with snow. And they are called Lilinoe, Waiau, and Kahaupokane. All four of them are the children of Haumea, the Earth Mother, and Kane, a god of life, fresh water, and fertility. However, Poliahu is the most well-known and has the most stories associated with her. Do you know if the other three are also associated with, like, volcanoes on the islands? They are each associated with specific, I think, mountains, but um, Waiau has a lake. Cool. To be honest, I didn't look into them that much, but they do definitely have, like, very specific associations. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, where yeah. Poliahu has Mauna Kea, they have mm-hmm. something else. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Cool. So a well-known one is the story of Aiwohikupua, who was in Ali'i. So, like, it's the traditional nobility of Hawaii. Uh And he became engaged to the chiefess, Lai Kawai. But one day he met Hina Ikamalama, who was a guise of Pele. So, Pele in disguise. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, and he gambled with her and lost. And since he was the forfeit, he then had to agree to marry her. Mm. And he tried to escape back to his original bride. But on the way he back, he met a beautiful chiefess, who was Poliahu, and he proposed to her. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's getting around. Apparently so. But so Pele learned of his betrayal and confronted him. Aibohikupua had to fulfill his vows to her since she had won him fair and square. So Poliahu had to give him up, uh-huh. accept her loss, etc. Mm-hmm. However, she attacked the couple with snow and heat until Pele could not take it anymore and left him. Whoa. And so he ended up, so he ended up losing all three of these women. Wow. Damn. Yeah. Rough time for him. So, the other thing is, um, like, you mentioned that there's, like, a bunch of conflict between Pele and Poliahu. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, like, a really big feature of Poliahu myths is mm-hmm. their constant rivalry. And um, so they are both part of a myth about Mauna Kea, mm. which, by the way, is extinct. Oh, really? And this is... Oh, wait, yeah. yes. I think I remember this, actually. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, so Poliahu came down Mauna Kea and saw a beautiful stranger who they who she welcomed, her and her sisters. 
when the ground became warm, Poi'ahu realized the stranger was Pele in Ooh, disguise. Oh, interesting. Yes, so Pele began to call for forces of fire to make their way up Mauna Kea, and the snow mantle began to burn up from the lava. Ooh. But Poi'ahu threw the mantle over the mountain, which caused great earthquakes and rock slides. And Poli'ahu managed to cover all of Pele's fire with snow, extinguishing it and causing the lava to harden and turn to stone. Wow. Which thus also made Mauna Kea extinct. That's incredibly powerful. That's a lot of snow and ice. It's very cool. And I think it's really awesome that Hawaiians clearly knew a lot about the like geological processes going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. The natural mm-hmm. land formation, all the... So- like, that's... It is very powerful. I think it's cool that it's goddesses who are doing this uh-huh. and that there's like sort of creation stories involved with mm-hmm. some of their land forms and everything. I think that's really fun. Yeah, it definitely Because it's like there is like science in this. There you know? is. It's no, like it literally s- is. Snow extinguished the lava. Yeah. Like that's awesome. That's literally how it works. And that's very interesting. Yeah. And also, I mean, it is fa- like... I think I talked about this in our Pele episode, but it's like very much like, oh, that's very powerful because that's a lot of snow and fire, like to extinguish the fire. And normally when you think of fire going against snow, you think snow will lose. But no, that's not what happens here. It's very interesting. Like you would think that the lava would overtake the snow, Mm -hmm. but like it can't because the the volcano is extinct. Yeah. I mean, like everything has its match, basically. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And because they, Pele and Poli'ahu are frequent rivals and they often fight over Mauna Kea. Mm-hmm. But Poli'ahu is always victorious. Mm. And Pele rules the southern half of the island of Hawaii and Poli'ahu rules the northern half. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So they're still at it today, I guess. Yeah. There's been no reconciliation. Yeah, they're just- they're just always fighting. Yeah. It's also interesting because awesome. that like helps create like a balance of, you know, the volcanoes aren't erupting all the time, but also there's not yeah, snow Yeah, I mean, you don't want time. just, yeah, you don't want the, there to be lava everywhere. You want some coldness <laughs> so yeah. you don't just like die from the heat, right? Yeah. Because I mean, Hawaii is obviously a pretty warm place. So it is really interesting that the, that the snow goddess wins the story. It really is interesting. Yeah. All right. So. Now we're going away from Hawaii back to the opposite, what I think is the opposite of Hawaii, potentially, which is Eastern Europe, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, to talk about Marzana, who is a Slavic goddess associated with winter, changing seasons, life, death, and rebirth. And because she's Slavic um, and and worshipped in a bunch of different places, she has a bunch of different names. Marzana is the Polish name, I believe. She's known as uh, Marana, or in some places, I believe the Russian name for her is Marena. It depends, um, but I think it's basically essentially a similar or the same figure. Um, but yeah, I'm just calling her Marzana because that's on the Wikipedia page. And you have to pick one. Might as well just pick whatever one. That is literally it. But yeah, that's the Polish name, I believe. Um, but yeah, so her name comes from, the, it's believed her name comes from Latinish roots um, of Mar or Mor, which means death. And some people also think she might be linked to the Roman god of war, Mars, which is interesting. Um, huh. And also some people tie her to a mare, which is a spirit from Slavic and Germanic folklore associated with bad dreams and sleep paralysis. I think we've talked about sleep hags before, actually, but like. We have. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, a like, lot of different places have like old women sitting on someone's chest causes sleep paralysis. Yeah, and you know it's where we get nightmare, you know, and stuff like that. Um, but I oh. think that that is a bit more disputed that personal like etymolo- etymological origin. But some people are like maybe that's where it comes from. Um, but yeah, yeah, pretty much all of her names have amar or amor in it. Um, she is a twin actually to the goddess Vesna, who is the goddess of spring. And she's the mother of Triglav, who is uh, the god of war. So, and the thing that she is most associated with is a very important ritual in um, like folk custom across like different Slavic nations called the drowning of Marzana. And in this ritual, a dr- an effigy of Marzana is ritualistically burned and or drowned every year at the beginning of spring in order to ensure a bountiful harvest for the year and bring about spring, which. For me, I love, you know, I love a good effigy um, and I love yeah. a good burning of an effigy. So that's very Slavic. <laughs> um, so traditionally, the effigy is made out of white cloth and straw. It's carried around the village by children on juniper twigs. And during the procession, it's dumped in every puddle and stream they pass. And then at night, the young adults will take over the procession of the effigy and light the twigs and then toss the bo- toss the effigy into a body of water. And the practice of the ritual can vary greatly from place to place. Sometimes the effigy is designed as a younger woman, sometimes an old crone, sometimes only adults are involved, sometimes mainly children, sometimes the effigy is torn Mm. into pieces before it's drowned. Sometimes she has a male counterpart called Marzignoc. Variation, of course. It's a folk custom in a lot of different places. There's going to be variation. Makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of a bleak tradition well you see after the effigy is drowned they often perform another ritual that's more cheerful it's known as walking with the cops that's with c-o-p-s-e at the end like in a wooden cops oh um and (laughs) they parade with um, branches pine cones and even small trees adorned with ribbons ornaments eggshells and flowers and they carry them from house to house um, and both rituals can be performed separate from one another, and they're consi- but they're considered to be a pair. The drowning represents the death of winter. The walking of the cops represents the arrival of spring. And you can see there's a lot of like fruit, sort of fertility um, symbols. Mm-hmm. We've got flowers, we've got eggshells, we've got plants. Um, so like a lot of fertility for the, the walking with the cops symbol there. Some people believe the drowning can also represent the descent of Marsana into the underworld to return next winter reborn. So there's more of like a belief of like a kind of Persephone experience going on where she um, goes into the underworld and then comes back and is reborn. I mean, I guess that's kind of reverse Persephone, um, but yeah. <laughs> or other interpretations is that she sort of symbolizes a sacrifice to appease winter. You have to sacrifice her in order to, um, you know, make winter go away because Russian winter, mm-hmm. Eastern European winter, rough, cold, generally. Um, bleak. Bleak, yeah. And, yeah, sort of like sympathetic magic of you sacrifice this thing and it'll make, I think, other things better. She represents winter. You drown winter. Winter will stop, you know. Mm-hmm. There have been attempts by the Catholic Church to repress this practice, like in Poland and other Eastern European countries that are primarily Catholic, so not really Russia, but um, including offering a syncretic practice in which the effigy of Judas is drowned instead, but the culture has prevailed, <laughs> which is great. Um, okay, so this is still still a common practice then? Yes, actually. Um, 
this practice is still done to this day. It's a lot less like ritualistic and religious. It's really more of like a cultural fun thing that people do. Um, Mm -hmm. It was originally, um, you know, it became like sort of syncretized with Christianity um, to some extent. Like it would be performed on the fourth Sunday after Easter, which is known as White Sunday. In the 1900s, it was changed to the spring equinox due to the USSR and secularism, etc. A bit more on that later. But yeah, um, one big thing about the USSR, especially in the early days, was they were big on like folk traditions and big on hating church, the church. Um, so they were like, this is great. Let's just take the religious part out of it. Um, so <laughs> also, um, one thing that's interesting is that another name that some people know call uh, Marzana by is Maslanitsa, which is really interesting because that's basically the Russian word for Mardi Gras, um, oh. which is the sort of practice the day of feasting right before Lent starts, where you eat a bunch of like meat traditionally and like butter before you go into Lent, where you are traditionally not supposed to eat any meat. So you're supposed to like eat all your meat products now because you don't want it to go bad during Lent. Um and um little etymology, masla means butter in Russian. Um Oh. But um yeah. <laughs> uh so that's interesting too that she's sort of so so associated with like things in that way. But yeah, so these events are still practiced today. They have like less religious significance um, and are more of a cultural thing than anything and like less serious and more just like, this is a fun thing we do. You know, we have a big parade and stuff in the town, I think, but like mm-hmm. they still around today. They're still around today. You know, like the culture prevails, which is exciting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's less of like her as a woman and, and a figure and more of like, well, this is an, a, a figure that is sacrificed every year for ending winter, but like she is associated with winter and she's definitely like a significant figure in yeah. like, the eyes of people trying to end winter. So, yeah. So my next lady is Hine Takurua, who is the personification of winter in Maori mythology. Cool. She is one of the wives of Tera, the sun, and the other wife is Hine Ramati. The personification of summer. Ooh. Who's also Hinitakurua's sister. Really interesting. Yeah, definitely. And so her name can be translated to Lady Winter or Winter Maid. Hine is a term used to mm-hmm. address a girl or a younger woman. And Takurua means winter. And Takurua can also refer to Sirius, the brightest star in the sky. Oh, so that's she's Sirius. also associated with Sirius. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um... So Hine Takurua lives in the ocean and is tasked with taking care of fish. Mm-hmm. Hine Raumati lives on the land and helps with the cultivation of crops, particularly kumara or sweet potatoes. And in the winter, around the winter solstice, the sun goes into the ocean and lives with Hine Takurua. Then he returns to the land in the, Maori, in the Maori month of Otoru, which I believe is early to mid-spring. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the time, Hinatakurua spends time with her father, Tangaroa, who is the sea god. And mm. they produce fish and seed to their migration. Interesting. And this myth represents the path the sun takes in the sky and the resulting changing of seasons. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, so... The Maori time system is based off the positions of the moon and the stars. The mm-hmm. sun does play a role in the passage of time, but it mainly it determines the seasons. Interesting. You can see from this myth. 
when the sun rises in the southeast, the Maori would know it was summer and days are long and warm. Mm -hmm. And when it rises in the northeast, the days are cold and short. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this is representative of that. And Hinetakurua has some children with the sun god, including Hinekaroro, the personification of the seagull, mm. Hinetara, who is another seabird, and Punga, who is the parent or origin of all lizards, spiders, and insects. Whoa! Cool. Yeah, pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting, like, we've kind of seen this in, like, all the myths from today, or, like, many of them, actually all of them, that, like, winter and, like, winter as a figure is like basically always contrasted with like spring summer, summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. like in the case of poliahu like mm-hmm. fire you, you know fire like heat mm-hmm. you know which is which is cool i mean it makes absolute sense it's like sun moon winter summer like there's yeah. contrast and they always have to like exist in contrast to another figure yeah but i mean it's, it's cool. all about like duality and like balance right yeah, and, like, Hinetakurua and Hineramati are, like, literally two sides of the same coin. They mm-hmm. are basically equal. It's just, like, mm-hmm. one is winter, one is summer, one lives on the land, one lives in the sea. Yeah. It's also, I mean, like, these are obviously two very different cultures with two di- very different stories. Um, but, like, I mean, it's just interesting that we have the story of Skathi, who is very anti-sea, and then we have the story of a goddess who's, like, super into yeah. the sea. Yeah, I was also kind of wondering, like, why the sea? Like, what does the sea have to do with winter? And I think, the like, the impression that I get is just, like, the sun, when it goes to live with Hine Takurua, it's far away from the land. Yeah. Because the land where the people are. Yeah. So when when the sun is with Hine Ramati, everything's nice and warm. Mm-hmm. And when he's away in the sea, mm-hmm. it's cold again. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know, like, if there was a favored wife or anything, like, or if there's stories about I that? think. I think it's about equal. That's cool. He spends like half his time with one, half his time with the other. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, because there is usually a favored one, isn't mm-hmm. there? Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting because like when it comes to winter goddesses, it's you kind of assume that like they're not super well liked, you know? Yeah. They're kind yeah. of like feared or respected, but respected in a feared way. Um, yeah. Which isn't. And sometimes they are, but sometimes it's like this is just how it is. Yeah. I mean, it is also, like, important that, like, I mean, I, I'm i not a geographer. I'm not an expert on climate. But I think that in, like, <laughs> the South Pacific, the difference between summer and winter is not as extreme as it might be in, like, Germany. I would imagine so. Yeah. Or, like, if you're in, like, northern Scandinavia, you're not going to be looking upon the winter goddess super excitedly. Yeah. Probably. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the kind of Scotty is like pretty neutral, but she also doesn't really interact with humans. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big part of Norse mythology in general is that gods don't interact with humans a ton. Yeah, yeah, they're just having like little dramas in their own worlds. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's a really. I mean, also, I just think it's interesting that there is a winter god, goddess in a place where there's not a super strong winter, as I sort of express. I expressed this before recording that we have multiple. Um, winter goddesses from like the pacific from pacific islands which is really interesting because those are like places i would consider warmer and not really wintry um yeah and so i just think that's interesting because like i mean i don't think there's an egyptian god of winter or if there is it's not one that's super well known or like worshipped a lot yeah because like there are seasons in in hawaii and in yeah new zealand out to but 
yeah, I mean, I would I would imagine that they're not like extremely severe, or at least they're not as feared as they would be in like yeah Norse mythology or something yeah. cold, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. And it's just interesting, like what is personified and what like spirits there are. But I'm also not an expert. Yeah. I'm not a meteorologist. No. So who's next? <laughs> Our final lady of the day is a very interesting one, in my opinion, because she's Snegorochka, who is a figure of um, from mainly uh, Russian fairy tales, Slavic fairy tales, Russian fairy tales, particularly. And so she is a character from a story that is ATU tale type 703. For those who care, which nice. is me um, and Lizzie. <laughs> and the Russian version of the story was first published by published by Alexander Afanasyev in the 1800s. And he is a pretty... Hey, what's the tale type? 703. I think it's like but the like, snow child, it? the snow girl, the snow maid and the snow child. Okay. Because um, there's a there's a um, grim fairy tale that's called like Dashnekind, which means the snow child. Oh. So. And oh, she's the okay. snow maiden, basically. Because, okay, so Snegorochka, Sneg means snow in Russian. Snegorochka okay. is like a big diminutive for um, snow, basically. Mm-hmm. Feminine diminutive. So, and yeah, so the Russian version was first published by Alexander Afanasyev, who is like the Russian folklorist fairy tale guy from the 1800s. Um, and it was in his second volume of folklore titled The Poetic Outlook on Nature by the Slavs. And so there's a few different versions of the story. The first one is the one from Afanasyev's collection. And it's about a couple named Mary and Ivan, who are two childless peasants. Often in versions of the story, they're an elderly couple who can no longer have kids on their own. um, And they just never had a chance to have a kid due to whatever reason. Um, But these two peasants, they make a child out of snow. And the child magically comes to life and is a beautiful girl that they name Snegurka which is another diminutive of uh, the words for snow, snake. And she grows up and she becomes friends with the girls in the village. And then one day they invite her on a walk in the woods. And after the walk, they build a fire and they decide to leap over it to celebrate St. John's Day as a tradition, I guess. Um, And they all do it. And then Snegurka tries to, but when she leaps over the fire, she only makes it halfway over before she evaporates into mist. Oh, yeah. okay. And that's the story. So fun. Awesome. <laughs> so happy. Um, the second version, um, Snegorochka is the daughter of Vesna Krasna, which is spring the beauty, basically, um, and Ded Maros, which is grandfather Frost. And she meets a shepherd boy named Lil, and she likes him, but her heart is cold and she doesn't have the ability to fall in love. So she doesn't really know what Ooh. to do, I guess. Um, but her mother, uh, Vesna Krasna, Spring the Beauty, gives her the ability to fall in love and encourages the relationship. But as soon as Snegorochka falls in love, her heart warms and she melts away. Oh, very sad. Um, awesome story, though. Yeah, it's an interesting story. And her story became very popular, like, right away. There's a ton of different versions of her story that's been adapted into basically first of all other versions of stories in different languages as like the russian story of the the snow girl or whatever um also plays ballets operas and also eventually once we get into the 20th century becomes movies um this includes an opera by rimsky korsakov 
um, a play by Ostrovsky with music by Tchaikovsky. Um, Ostrovsky was a relatively well-known um, playwright in the 1800s in Russia, and people have probably heard of Rimsky-Korsakov and Tchaikovsky, who are both pretty famous Russian composers at the time. Yeah. But yeah, they all were moved by her story and made adaptations and stuff. Then, um, so in the Russian Empire, Snegorochka was a figure associated with Christmas, kind of like Santa Claus in America and a lot of places. But, you know, America is a big place for him. Um, however, as I said before, once we get to the Soviet Union, all religious holidays, including Christmas, were outlawed. No religion allowed. Um, but then in 1935, they allowed the celebration of New Year's. Um, because that was a, like a secular holiday. It's just, you know, the new year. And they made Snegorochka a symbol of the more secular holiday instead. And she became the helper of her grandfather. He became her grandfather, Died Moroz, grandfather Frost. And they are the symbol of like sort of secular Soviet um, winter holidays as well, particularly the new year, which is today still like the big winter holiday in Russia. Um, is the new year. It's the one where you go and like go home to your family and like have a big party and stay out all night mm. and like have a big meal and everything. It's and actually have like fir trees decorated with ornaments, which sounds familiar. But anyways, it's not Christmas. <laughs> it's not religious. <laughs> it's kind of like reverse what the the Catholic, what the church did when they were like converting everyone is like they took all these like pagan traditions and were like, this is Christian now. And then the Soviet Union like takes all these Christian traditions and they're like, this is not Christian now. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so she is like, and then Dead Moros is like basically the Soviet Union Santa Claus where he's not Santa Claus, but he sure looks a lot like Santa Claus. Um, but he's wearing like more awesome. traditional like Russian clothing. He's wearing red. He has a white beard, but like, it's not Santa Claus. Um, and Snegorochka <laughs> usually wears silver blue robes. She's got a fur cap or a snowflake crown. And she is a symbol of um, New Year in Novigod. And yeah, she is not necessarily someone that has a lot of like mythological significance, like pre the 1800s when Afanasyev wrote down her story. But if you wrote down her story, her story was being told before he wrote it down. So like she's definitely yeah. like, existed as a figure for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's who she is. Some little fun Soviet Union in- information. I really like her story. Mm-hmm. It has some kind of like fairy tale qualities about it, you know? It's a very like, or like, you know, 1800s folklore ATU. collection fairy tale, you know? Of yeah. like, this yeah, girl definitely. falls in love and then melts away, you know? Yeah. It, it has like that vibe. Little Mermaid. Yeah, it is. It is people. like Little Mermaid. Um. Also, she should not be confused with the Snow Queen, by also by Hans Christian Andersen, which is a different story. Also, a very interesting story. But, anyways, different story. Nothing to do with Frozen. Actually, supposedly Frozen is kind of based on the Snow Queen, but oh, but like they're not they, similar. They're not similar at all. Like it's not even like you know, Frozen takes like Disney takes some stories and is like, this is Snow White now, and you're like, okay, I guess. This is not it. <laughs> like and they're not. They're not similar. They're not similar. Like they're about s- like snow. There's snow. You know? I guess there's some frozen heart stuff. That's it. That's literally it. Um, but it's a very interesting story. I'd recommend checking it out. I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. Um, it yeah. is used in the Once Upon a Time season where they have frozen characters. I will say they do actually bring that in a bit more. <laughs> so I will awesome. give them that credit. <laughs> we should have a Mythaladies 
watch of Once Upon a Time. Gosh, that's a lot of commitment. You should watch it, and I can talk about what I remember because I do not have the time. To I haven't. Read it. I haven't watched it in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> any any other thoughts about Winter Goddesses, Lizzie? I mean, I kind of said this already, but I do think it's interesting that Winter is always sort of put in opposition with Spring or. Mm-hmm heat or summer or whatever and not autumn it makes absolute sense Mm -hmm. true autumn has a very uh it's not very important mythologically i feel like i mean it is because there are goddesses of harvest gods of harvest and stuff but it's sort of its own like as a season it's more focused on like agricultural than like this is the time when this happens you know (laughs) yeah i would say definitely I mean, winter is, like, a big, huge deal, especially in certain places, like yeah. you were mentioning before, like, in Germany, mm-hmm. Russia, those types of places, when it would have been extremely dangerous mm-hmm. and you could die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's obviously a huge, a huge deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting that there's, like, some sort of variation in our ladies of, like, okay, this, like, they're all winter, but, like, one of them's, like, a snow goddess. Mm-hmm. One of them's, like... You know, lives on a volcano, mm-hmm. you know, one of them's about skiing, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And so, like, some of them, like, have were had to do with, like, the changing of seasons and some of them not so much. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. obviously, Hinitakurua, her whole thing is about the changing of seasons. Same with Matsana, that um, the rituals are all about the banishment of winter uh-huh you know yeah i mean i feel like a lot of them are less about like bringing the actual force of winter into people's lives and more about just like existing in the time of winter whereas it's yeah. possible that like male gods of winter are more like this guy brings the snow this guy brings the cold winds and stuff like that yeah i feel like you're right whereas this isn't like she's not like these women aren't as like huge big powerful forceful type of deities for the most part but some yeah yeah they're not like uh zeus or maui type of gods Mm -hmm. where they're just like they're doing everything i don't even know yeah exactly they're much more chill Mm -hmm. i mean scotty just likes to ski and be in the mountains and hates the ocean yeah yeah (laughs) so which is i mean that's a comparably pretty chill Mm -hmm. uh myth yeah <laughs> associated with her like she's i mean that's kind of the case with all the norse gods i feel like they're just kind of chilling mm-hmm. doing their own thing having their drama but they yeah yeah <laughs> norse mythology is really fun honestly norse yeah yeah i agree like there's like the story where like loki is a horse and then gets impregnated that's a that is a story a horse baby yeah it's always just weird stuff going on there's a lot of fascinating Norse mythology stories. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, we hope you did. I did. Um, feel free to subscribe, leave a review, tell all your friends, donate to our Kofi, and yeah, we'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.